Hello, and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you. Now, I should start with a warning for anyone listening with a fragile disposition who has more than $30 million in the bank. You might find some of the content of this episode upsetting, because we're talking about taking some of your money away. Three men in America now own as much as the lower 50% of the population. And the richest 1%, that's you with your 30 million odd, own around 40% of the nation's wealth. At least two prominent contenders for the US presidency and quite a lot of economists think that needs to change. I'm going to talk later to two of our Europe-based economists about the experience of wealth taxes here. And I'll also be talking to Bloomberg's Jana Randau in Frankfurt about the 30th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall. But first, here's our US economy reporter, Katya Dmitrieva, with the lowdown on wealth taxes and the US presidential race. Today we say to Wall Street and the billionaire class, You ain't gonna get it all anymore. That's Bernie Sanders. Yes, that is a two cent tax on fortunes over $50 million. Your first 50 million, don't worry, you're in the clear. But for your 50 millionth and first dollar, you gotta pitch in two cents. And two cents for every dollar after that. Just two cents. And that's Elizabeth Warren. Their voices are becoming more and more familiar as campaigns heat up for the 2020 presidential election. Both have big plans to reshape U.S. tax policy. Their goal? Narrow the gap between the haves and have-nots. America is now the least equal developed nation, largely because of outsized gains among the rich. For the majority of Americans, their wealth has actually declined in the past decade. That's despite a record stock market, the longest economic expansion in history, and the lowest unemployment in 50 years. Inequality also played a role in the 2016 election. Donald Trump won in part by promising jobs and an improved life for those left behind. Where you're born, where you went to school, if you went to school, how rich your parents are, these all dictate where you'll end up in America. So. How do you solve an issue that's so complicated and runs so deep? Sanders and Warren think they have the answer. Make the rich pay more. For Warren and Sanders, a wealth tax is a way to even things out, to redistribute economic gains more broadly. We have something that's just fundamentally wrong with an economy that isn't performing well for broad majorities of the population. Stephanie Kelton is an economics professor at Stony Brook University, and she advises the Sanders campaign. You know, this is an economy that on the surface might look pretty healthy in terms of the headline unemployment numbers or GDP growth. But underneath the surface, there is a lot that isn't working. Wage growth has stagnated this year despite a tight labor market. Those without a college degree make less than half what someone with a master's degree makes. If they go to school, they're likely to get saddled with huge amounts of debt. 
Meanwhile, healthcare is becoming more and more expensive. For people making the median income and working multiple jobs, life can feel impossible. The outcome can be tragic. More people, especially white middle-aged men, are committing suicide or dying of drug overdoses. So why is taxing the solution? Gabrielle Zuckman, the economist who advised Sanders and Warren, explains. You know, look, taxation is uh, one of the key determinants of the long-run uh, concentration of wealth. That's one of the big lessons from history. You know, when 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 the tax system was uh, much more uh, progressive, that's also when inequality was lower. And uh, if you care about reducing the concentration of wealth, uh, then the most direct and powerful tool would be a, a progressive wealth tax. Zuckman says wealth translates into political power and an erosion of democracy. He is one of several economists, including Thomas Piketty and Emmanuel Saez, who have elevated the issue in their field. Kelton, who thinks that generally a government doesn't need to raise taxes to spend, acknowledges the reality on Capitol Hill and the question, how are you going to pay for it? I mean, this is the sort of way it works in Washington, D.C., right? You're, you're a candidate or you're a lawmaker and you want to do some big ambitious stuff and you've got an agenda and it's going to cost a lot of money. And, well, if you have to go where the money is, okay, where's the money? Well, I guess the rich people have all the money. You know, everybody knows that there are these concentrations of income and wealth in the hands of a small number of very, very well-off people. Here's a breakdown of the plans. Sanders is more ambitious, with his plan cutting the average billionaire's wealth in half in the next 15 years. The annual tax would apply to about 180,000 households. Warren's would apply to 70,000 because her wealth threshold is higher. In a nutshell, both candidates would raise several trillion dollars from multi-millionaires to be spent on social programs. But some research has shown that redistributing income may not be all that effective. William Gale is co-director at the Tax Policy Center in Washington. His research shows that a small boost in taxes for the rich has a pretty negligible effect on overall inequality. After all, even if a billionaire hands over tens of millions of dollars, there's still a huge gap between them and someone working several part-time gigs at a minimum wage. One question, of course, is how much should you raise taxes? A second question is, is that really the best or only way to narrow the inequality gap? We need to consider both government spending uh, and tax policy. There's no guarantee of success. In fact, 15 countries in Europe have tried to implement some kind of wealth tax in recent years, but only four still have one. Why? The levies didn't raise a lot of money, and they were pretty tough to collect. More on that in the next segment. What's the ideal solution, then? Gale suggests closing income tax loopholes, improving education, and bolstering the social safety net. It's also messaging. It's not about punishing the rich. In fact, some rich people are actively supporting higher taxes. I'm Morris Pearl. I'm the chairman of a group called the Patriotic Millionaires. We have a group of hundreds of wealthy business people and investors 
who are very concerned that the growing inequality is going to destabilize our country. We're at a turning point, and we might end up with, you know, pitchforks or taxes, and I'll choose taxes. Pearl was formerly an executive at BlackRock, one of the world's largest fund managers. There's a growing understanding that inequality isn't just an issue of morality, but also basic economics. If the majority of people aren't increasing their wealth, their spending is restrained, business formation is lower, and the economy that relies so much on consumption won't grow as fast. I made a lot of money because people pay their mortgage bills on time and their cell phone bills and their iTunes bills and money's trickled up from all of these people paying these little bills every month to those of us who've invested in the companies like Amazon and Google and um, Verizon and the banks who make money from those monthly bills coming in. And without people who can make their payments every month, investors can't make money either. Wall Street's flagged some concern about a Warren presidency as she rises in the polls. Others, like billionaire investor Ray Dalio and even ratings agency S&P, have said inequality is one of the biggest issues, putting the economy and political stability at risk. There's been some movement. A handful of places in the U.S. have started rolling out taxes that hit companies worsening the income divide. Portland, Oregon added a surcharge to companies where the top executive earns 100 times more than the typical employee. Still, there's a long way to go for national policies to come in force. And the election is a full year away. The good news, politicians and voters have a lot of options. And look, the wealth tax is one policy that can help address the rise of inequality, but there are other policies that are equally, are almost as equally important, you know, fixing the income tax, corporate taxation, but also, you know, antitrust, uh, regulation of intellectual property, uh, access to education, reforming the healthcare system, you know, all of these matters, and uh, uh, countries choose the level of inequality that they have through government policy. So the choice is really ours to make. For Bloomberg News in Washington, D.C., I'm Katia Dmitrieva. So in the debate about wealth taxes, one claim you hear a lot in the U.S. is that wealth taxes would make America more European. Now, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, I guess, depends on your point of view. Wealth taxes certainly sound like something Europe would have a lot of, with all of its emphasis on social solidarity and redistribution. So you might be surprised to hear that Switzerland's currently the only European country that raises a significant amount of money from wealth taxes. It's true that more than a dozen European countries have had wealth taxes at some point in the last few years, but nearly all of them have abolished them. And two countries that have largely junked their wealth taxes are Sweden and France. We have a Swedish economist in residence now at Bloomberg Economics, Johanna Jensen, based in Stockholm, and a French economist, Maiva Cousin, who's currently in Switzerland. So I thought it might be useful to talk to them about the experience there of wealth taxes. Johanna, let me start with you. Tell me what happened to wealth taxes in Sweden. Well, you're right. We have abolished them. We abolished them in 2007 after 60 years, actually. And uh, 
you're right. It was not because Swedes have a problem with taxing the rich, actually. It was that the tax, after several years, included so many tweaks and exceptions that it was deemed to be unfair in the end. And that is something that you hear a lot, that it's not so much the principle of wealth taxes, it's the fact that you're then, you end, people try so hard to avoid them that they end up very, very exactly. distorting and messy. Exactly, that's it. And uh, we had a, a number of well-known corporate leaders that threatened to move abroad, and some did. Hennes and Maritz, H&M's le- uh, founder, Erling Passion, did move. Also, IKEA, Ingvar Kampra, did so too. Uh, and in a bid to keep know-how and capital in the country, certain shares in publicly owned companies were actually made exempt. And that, in combination with a fairly low threshold for this wealth tax, that meant that the tax was paid not by the wealthiest, but by many middle and above average income earners. And, but it does it, it does seem odd, though, when you have a country that you know where high-income folks are paying very high marginal tax rates. You think there was something just more visceral about people feeling that wealth should be shouldn't be taxed in the same way as income? Well, perhaps I think it's also that what we're seeing in Sweden now is that. And it's like that with tax policy. If if uh, It's like pruning a garden. If you tax something heavily, it will wither. If you reduce taxation, it will likely grow. And what we're seeing in Sweden now is that because capital taxes have been lowered, while labor income taxes are still high, uh, people tend to start their own companies. Even consultants start their own companies. And instead of having a labor income, they make it a capital income. Uh, Maeva, let's talk a little bit about the French experience. I mean, I don't quite remember it, but I know when I was first studying economics, uh, President Mitterrand's introduction of the wealth tax when he came in in 1981 was talked about as being the great kind of move against the tide of global opinion. You know, you remember in 81, it was a period where market reforms were coming into the fore with Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher, and his wealth tax was kind of symbolic of the fact that France was taking a different direction. But we have now... uh, President Macron has basically got rid of it in the last couple of years. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. So it was introduced right by Mitterrand in uh, 1981, and it was partly abolished by Macron following the 2017 election. So out of the wealth tax, they have kept the tax on housing wealth, which is about, I'd say, a fourth of the total tax uh, base that uh, was in place before, and they have abolished the tax on financial wealth more generally. And the stated objective was actually to um, increase productive investment into the French economy by avoiding that actually some capital moves abroad or in um, loop tax loopholes uh, to avoid to avoid the wealth tax. And do you think it's going to have any of those effects? I mean, do you think it was ever as sort of negative in its effects as people said and is now going to cause this great rebirth of, of growth or has it become more symbolic? So clearly there was a symbolic effect and I think the signaling that President Macron was really pro-business was quite strong from abolishing this tax. Uh, We're quite lucky that there has been um, a committee set up to assess the impact of the change to the wealth tax and the change to the taxation of capital Um, and they have um, given their first report earlier this month, in October, so last month. And so far, it's early to tell how much impact that will have. It's quite difficult to know actually how much tax exile had happened before uh, the tax was um, partly abolished. So it's difficult, but the French 
Trésor, the French uh, Ministry of Finance, is um, starting to publish a lot of data, and anonymized data, on taxes and wealth taxes and wealth in general. So hopefully that will be a good laboratory to understand how those wealth taxes can affect behaviors and, and inequalities. Well, I guess it is a bit ironic that you've got uh, Macron kind of getting rid of, uh, or largely getting rid of the wealth tax, just as American politicians, and it seems like an awful lot of economists are all saying that maybe these kind of taxes are a good idea. And it is partly actually because of the data that that uh, the French economist Thomas Piketty has been putting out there. Uh, so is this, do you think that we will be sort of internationally moving more in favour of taxing wealth in one way or another, even if maybe the French way of doing it was not the right way of doing it? So generally, uh, wealth taxation is progressive because there is a correlation between wealth and income. So that means that if you start taxing higher wealth or the wealthiest households, so it's equivalent to increasing the effective tax rates on people with higher income. So I think that's the first, that's the first rational way we might see more wealth taxation, especially if you think that income, including capital income, is actually more difficult to tax. And because wealth inequality has taken such uh, a prominent focus in, in the debate, it's probably something we will see debated more in the next, and we are seeing already debated more uh, in the economics and the fiscal or government policy debate. We're going to have a lot more debate around asset taxation, I think, everywhere. But uh, certainly as economists, we probably it's, it's annoying for people to hear, but economists tend to focus on the details of these things. And it's going to matter quite a lot, I think, um, about the details of those proposals on the US presidential campaign. And maybe we'll come back to it in a few months' time. But in the meantime, uh, Johanna Jeanson in Stockholm and Maeva Cousin in Zurich, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Before we go this week, we thought we should go to Germany to reflect on one anniversary and one new beginning. The anniversary, of course, is the 30th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall. And the new beginning is the arrival of Christine Lagarde on Monday this week for her first day in the office as president of the European Central Bank. Well, Jana Randau is an economy and central bank editor for Bloomberg based in Frankfurt. Jana, let's talk about the ECB first. That's your, your bread and butter, your day to day. What have we seen of Christine Lagarde since her arrival at the ECB on Monday? We saw her walking into the ECB, which which was actually um, quite nice. She took a few minutes to to chat to reporters on on her first working day, and then she disappeared very quickly, saying um, she has a lot of catching up, a lot of uh, people to get to know to do. And the first speech she gave actually that very same day, Monday evening, uh, in Berlin to uh, to applaud uh, the efforts and, and laud uh, Wolfgang Schäuble, former finance minister of Germany. Uh, she hasn't spoken about monetary policy uh, yet, so that is something that we are very much looking forward to. Um, but she has paid tribute in that sense to, to a great uh, leader that she knows very well from her time as French finance minister and um, as head of the IMF. 
Yeah, and Wolfgang Schäuble was a pretty towering figure during the whole of the Eurozone crisis. But you you literally wrote the book on Mario Draghi, Jana, with your Bloomberg colleague, uh, Alessandro Spezial. Um, behind the scenes look on how he saved the euro. I think it's available in Italian now, but I think hopefully in English soon in all good bookstores. Um, what do you expect to be uh, the big contrast between the two, Christine Lagarde and Mario Draghi? I think we will see a lot more from Christine Lagarde in the, in the public eye. Um, I expect her to be much more outgoing, much more engaging with the public to to see her show up at events, give interviews, give speeches. That's something that Mario Draghi hasn't really done over the past couple of years. Um, he has basically only communicated during press conferences, uh, the ones following the ECB decisions, uh, testimony in Parliament, that sort of thing. But he hasn't really been out there explaining uh, ECB policy to the public. And I, I think uh, Lagarde, that's one of her fortes, um, to engage with the people. She's a very charming person. She likes to be with people, talk to people. So I think that'll that'll do the institution very well, especially in the light um, of criticism lately especially in Germany, where the ECB isn't particularly well regarded or its monetary policy, you should say. You're right about the charm. I mean, I think Mario Draghi is quite charming, but I've interviewed uh, Christine Lagarde many times over the years, and she has a way, she, she, she can be quite kind of conspiratorial, you know, before the cameras are running, she compliments you on have a little conversation around your boots that you're wearing or whatever it is you know she's just she's very good at putting people at ease and then communicating well you're right but is the risk that she actually knows some of these people too well particularly politicians you know if the ecb needs to stand as a a bulwark against political pressures um in europe just as any central bank has to do you think that might be an issue that she has such strong relationships already with the politicians I, I think actually quite to the contrary. Um, she is somebody who really grows attached to the institution. Uh, she leads, you saw that at the IMF. She adapted very quickly to the, to the spirit of the institution and became a very outspoken defender of the institution. And I think we'll see something similar. And if anything, the, the close relations to governments, to finance ministers, to heads of states will help her do her job. Because um, if you look at it, um, the ECB is really coming to an end of the line. They are running out of tools. It's, of course, something that a policymaker would never admit, but interest rates are already at a record low. Um, QE has limits, and um, although they say you know, they, they have some way to go, ultimately, she needs governments to, to step up their game. They have been calling on governments to step up fiscal stimulus, um, structural reforms, that sort of thing. And I think um, her relationships with the political elite in that sense can only help. Well, we shall see. You will see uh, how things go. And uh, we'll be back to talk to you, I'm sure, in the, in the next uh, few months. But a last word on the, the big historic anniversary that Germany has been commemorating. The 30 years since the fall of the Berlin Wall. Uh, it's hard to imagine a euro uh, without a unified Germany. You know, 30 years ago, we didn't have the eurozone. Um, if you go to Berlin now, the on the surface, uh, the unification process seems complete. You know, you wouldn't, you can't identify east and west um, just standing on that border in, in in Berlin. But I know underneath, if you look at the economic data, and certainly if you look at the political polling for far right parties, 
it's still quite a divided nation. Is that what you find, Jana? Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think a lot of it has to do with how that unification or reunification um, came into being. Uh, a lot is rooted in the in the political decision, the economic decisions that were taken right in the 1990s and the early 1990s. Um, and what you can what you can still feel today is that many Eastern German people are still scarred from from the process. About three million people lost their jobs in the early 1990s. Now. The labor force was only nine million people big, so that's a third of of the labor force right there. And unemployment was was a total foreign concept for for somebody from from a communist country, so so that hit deeply. And um, things have obviously recovered since then, but unemployment is still higher in the east than it is in the west. People are actually working longer hours; they're making less money. They're less likely to um, get into leadership positions. So there is a sense of of feeling left behind still among a lot of people in East Germany, and that is also one explanation why you see people voting for populist parties, populists on the right and on the left. And I think, you know, if anyone listening to this wonders whether economics really matters, that was a time when economics really mattered because there was, the, there was this decision, I think you were, you were talking about it, Jana, the decision to have the conversion rate between the old the mm -hmm. Ostmark and the Mark Deutsche Mark be one for one. That was the politically important thing. And all the economists at the time said, if you do that, you've got very unproductive European, East German workers who will overnight be put out of work. And that's exactly exactly what happened. It's taken a long time to come back from that. It shows that economic decisions really can make a difference. Yeah, very much so. I spoke actually uh, many years back to the uh, vice president of the East German Central Bank about exactly this. And he said, yeah, we knew that this was wrong from an economic point of view. But really, uh, politically, uh, there was no other way around, because how do you explain to people who have saved, who have worked, who've done nothing wrong, that uh, their savings are basically worth only half of, of what they thought they were? Um, so that was one very, very um, big decision that was taken. And as a matter of fact, you know, when, when you looked at which companies were actually um, productive or, or competitive in that sense after after that whole transition there was one company in all of East Germany which was and um, it's the one that makes uh, fancy China um, <laughs> fancy porcelain I should ask you personally um, you were born in the east of Germany what what's your memory I know you're terribly young but what's your memory of the <laughs> of the fall of the Berlin Wall I have I, I have quite vivid memories of that. I grew up in Leipzig, which was one of the places where the Monday demonstrations were probably strongest, uh, leading up to the fall of the Berlin Wall. Um, so they led right by our house where we lived um, each Monday, and and it was a mixture of terrifying views and also very um, hopeful uh, views. The day it finally happened. Um, it, it was a very strange atmosphere, a strange atmosphere throughout the city. I remember uh, going to uh, West Berlin with my family, uh, taking the train up there the Sunday after, walking across that border and and uh, being greeted by presumably by with with from thousands West of other Germany. people. There were so many people and 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 so many people from the east, so many people from the west, just coming out to see uh, to to give the kids chocolate and and the parents coffee and and um, strange things that, that you wouldn't necessarily give as gifts, but um, that were usually part of the packages that traveled from east to west. 
One of my most vivid memories is actually going into um, a fruit and vegetable store on, on Sunday in West Berlin, you know, uh, on the weekend after the wall broke and just seeing what was on display there. Uh, I think we must have stood there for minutes, just uh, jaws dropping. I'd never seen a pineapple in my life. I didn't know, you know, half the fruits that were on display. That's kind of the luxury that, that you as a kid uh, did not remember. Or walking by a toy store, it, it just, you know, it felt like heaven. Um, it felt like coming to a foreign place, essentially. Mm. Well, we should, it is good to remember. Amazing things can happen. Jana Randout, thank you very much. Pleasure. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Stephanomics. We'll be back next week with more on-the-ground insights from around the global economy. In the meantime, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, website, app, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review our show so it can reach more listeners. And for more news and analysis during the week from Bloomberg Economics, follow at Economics on Twitter. You can also find me on at MyStephanomics. The story in this episode was written and reported by Kata Dmitrieva. It was produced by Magnus Hendrickson and edited by Scott Lamman, who is also the executive producer of Stephanomics. Special thanks, too, to Maeva Cousin, Johanna Jensen, Jana Randau and Ben Holland. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcasts.